Good evening, everybody. Welcome to the Cedar edition of Church Tonight. That's this building, Cedar. So um, if you guys will turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. We're in part two of a study focusing on the theme of outsiders. That's what Peter's writing to, the outsiders. If you look with me at 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. He says that he's writing to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. And he names the five regions of Asia Minor that he's writing to. And so Peter has this idea that Christians in the church are in a state of exile. They're sojourners. They're foreigners. They're pilgrims. They're outsiders of society. And he ends the letter with verse 13 of chapter 5. She who is at Babylon who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. And so does Mark, my son. And that was early church code for Rome. And so he's saying, I'm writing in Rome. I don't want the Romans to know, but Rome becomes the new Babylon for the Christians because this is the empire that is pressing in on them and making life difficult for them and throwing them on the outside of society. So outsiders. Tonight we're going to look at um, holding on to holiness. Last week, we saw that hope is what an outsider holds on to in his time on earth. Uh, Tonight, holiness. That's what Peter's going to say the church needs right now. We need to hold tightly onto our holiness to survive our outside position. So, let me read to you from the bulletin so you can get a summary from some of the things of last week. We will pray, and we will get into it. Outsiders. The first three centuries of the church struggled in a Roman Empire that was suspicious and demeaning of Christianity. It saw Christians as atheists, denying the power of the gods. It saw Christians as antisocial, critical of the conventional culture. To Rome, the gospel threatened their way of life. Today, America increasingly places Christianity in a similar context. Christians are outsiders living in the world, but not of it. Peter writes his first letter to such outsiders. And if our faith is to survive this generation, we must adopt Peter's message and adapt to living on the outside. And 1 Peter is in many ways a survival manual. Let's pray. Father, The grass withers and the flower falls, but your word remains forever. So I ask that you grant us ears to hear and hearts to receive what your spirit says to your church tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's read 1 Peter 2 verse 4. As you come to him, this is Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion, that's Jerusalem, a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, And whoever believes in him will never be put to shame. So, the honor is for you who believe, 
But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But, verse 9, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles or the nations honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. We have forgotten our origins. And it's because of this spiritual amnesia that the church finds itself as outsiders to society. We had an origin, but it is humanity, it's, it's humanity's problem that we've forgotten that origin. Spiritual amnesia is epidemic around the world. All humans have not recalled their actual origins, who made them, what they were made for. And it is because of this that when the church finds its origins and it reclaims its original place in God, that we become outsiders because the rest of the people have completely forgotten and we seem foreign and strange. Spiritual amnesia is the problem that we face in our society and in the world. Now, the good news in all of this is that we haven't forgotten that Jesus has done the amazing job of bringing us to himself and re-educating us on what it means to be a human and what it means to have God be our God. And so we have, going back to Genesis, as uh, we had John read for us at the beginning, we're told at the beginning what it meant to be a human being. And in Genesis 1 verse 26, it tells us that we were made in the image of God. And in the likeness of God, he created us, right? And then it tells us that we are to have dominion over the beasts of the field and the birds of the air and the sea, the fish of the sea and the animals on the land and everything that creeps on the earth. We're to have dominion over it. That's, that's rulership. We're, have to, we're to have kingship. And then it goes on. And Genesis 1 verse 28 is actually considered by many people the first great commission. Jesus gave us the commission to go into the world and make disciples. But actually, it began in Genesis when God created us and said, Hey, I have a mission for you. Will you join me in it? And the mission he gives us in Genesis 1.28 is this. God blessed them, the humans, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And then have dominion, rulership, kingship over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So what we learned is that in the very beginning, we were originally kings of God's creation and we were also priests of his temple. 
That's how it all began. We are the crown of his creation. In the Genesis account, as God goes about creating the six days of creation, we are saved for day six. Everything was made to prepare us to come into it. God was as if he's setting a table, a banquet, and he's getting everything ready. And then you bring the guests as everything's made for them. We were created last because God had been creating everything for our arrival. We were the climax and the crown and the glory of everything that he had made. And when he brought us into it, he says, here, it's all yours. I want you guys to be the kings of my creation. Go and rule it. Have mastery over it. Take care of it. Do this on my behalf. We were given an extraordinary insider status into God's world. Nothing that he made and nobody he made had a status above us. Everything was given underneath us. All we had to do was eat from the tree of life, which said, God, we're going to keep you king over us while we rule on your behalf. And then we move into Genesis 2, and we see that God creates this garden, and it's in the center of everything, and it's the most prosperous place that God had made, and it says that he planted the humans there in Eden. In Eden, it is the first temple ever made, because God lived there. He wasn't up in heaven. God was there in the garden, and humans fellowshiped with him. The original meeting place with God. The original temple. This wasn't a temple made with stones. This was a temple made out of creation. Just a beautiful organic garden. And as the temple that would later be built in Israel was made with precious stones like onyx stones and gold and bdellium, those are part of the high priest's breastplate and part of the making of the temple itself. Those stones are there, but guess what was in the Garden of Eden? Gold, bdellium, and onyx stone. And it says that God walked with the humans in the cool of the day. There in Genesis 3, he walked with them, which is the exact same word that's used in Leviticus when God says, hey, keep the camp clean because I walk in your midst. God's temple and Eden were one in the same. And as God moved the progress of salvation history forward, God was actually taking Israel and he was claiming them to say, hey, the world is in a state of spiritual amnesia. We don't know where we came from, what our original purpose is. So I want to take Israel and I want to reinstitute into them that original call. I want them to be the kings of the earth, that all the nations will eventually come to them. And I want them to be my priests to present my presence to the world. So do you remember what God tells the Israelites as he takes them out of Egypt and brings them to Mount Sinai. And there, there's this initiation. There's this, there's this covenant that's made between God and the Israelites. And you know what he tells them? <coughs> he tells them the words that you read in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. This is where Peter gets this. He's borrowing from what God told Israel in Exodus. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. And so God there gives to Israel this call. You are now going to be a royal priesthood. You're going to reclaim your kingship over my creation and my priesthood of my temple. You are going to be that royal priesthood. 
on this earth, Israel didn't forget. The spiritual amnesia was erased. God had fixed who they were on the earth. Now, he tells them over and over, book of Leviticus, for example, be holy for the Lord your God is holy. I've given you this awesome call, so why don't you now be holy? Why don't you now walk with me? And Israel eventually doesn't actually live up to that status. They aren't holy. And as a result, they aren't able to rule God's creation, and they aren't priests of God's temple. They lose the temple. They lose their land. They're sent off. They're outsiders of the Babylonian Empire. And then Jesus comes. He starts the church. And what does Peter say to the church? Well, hmm, we're kind of like outsiders, like Israel was, only we're in the Roman Empire, and we are struggling to find our place in society. Um, That's because we are a royal priesthood. We are picking up the mission that Israel had failed. Not to say that we're going to complete it and perfect it, Because God has a plan for his people, Israel, and he's going to do that when he returns. But he's given us a share in the message. He's given us a call. Uh, Chapter 1, verse 13, you might remember from last week. He said, you, I'm sorry, 1, verse 16. You shall be holy for I am holy. That's what he told Israel in Leviticus. He tells that to us through Peter. Then he says here, you are a chosen people. You're my royal priesthood. And this is Peter's plan. Okay, so we have a problem. We're in a society that has completely forgotten God and why we're on the earth. But I have a solution. I have a plan. We're going to get back to our original call. I'm going to ask you, church, on the outside to realize that you're not just outsiders. That God has an amazing plan for us and he's called us inside his plan. We are insiders in God's kingdom, though we're outsiders of this kingdom. And so he tells them, once again, like we saw last week, Peter tells them about their insider position. So he says in verse 4, notice that Jesus was rejected by men. He's an outsider. But in the sight of God, we're chosen and precious. And we are like living stones being built up. He's taking all of us and he's bringing us together to make a temple. Except the cool thing is this isn't like the temple of the way the church has done things forever and ever and ever. Where we build our magnificent buildings and make them beautiful and gorgeous and we ask the people to come visit us. This is not what he's saying. We're not dead stones making a temple. We're living stones. He's taking us. He's putting us together so that we could move around. We're a priesthood, he goes on to say, right? We are going forth and we're taking the word and the amazing promises and the fact that we're insiders of God's kingdom and we're taking that into society because we're outsiders. No one's going to come visit us anymore. That's what an outsider Christianity looks like. People don't listen to us. So now the call is that we go into the society and bring the temple with us rather than waiting for people to come and see how cool our worship is. (laughs) which Richard it is (laughs) Um, that was by that was a general general comment comment to the uh, American church so what is Peter's solution again he's telling us that we're insiders I want you to notice three times he says chosen verse four we are chosen and precious in the sight of God Verse 6, he's laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. That's Jesus. And then in verse 9, but you are a chosen race. He wants it to be crystal clear. 
that no matter what the world says about us, no matter how deaf of an ear they turn toward us, we have been chosen by the only opinion that matters. And that's, that's corporately, as we're rejected by society, but also individually, as we've been maybe lacking the relationships we need or a parental figure that loves us and cares for us, Some of us are in that state where we feel like nobody cares about us. I even come to church and feel like nobody talks to me. I need you to hear tonight that you are chosen, that God has looked at you and he says, you might feel like you don't fit in anywhere, but you are inside my kingdom. And I want to make you a king of my creation and a priest of my temple. I want to give you the status and that mission. Amen. Amen. So. It, goes, it gets better. Uh, the insider keeps going. Your insiders because your chosen race, a royal priesthood, holy nation, people from my own possession, the purpose that we praise him. But look at verse 10. Just reminding you, back to reality, you're still an outsider in the world's eyes. Uh, and this is also before we met Jesus. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. See what he's doing. Peter's saying, keep our eyes on Jesus who's drawing us in. He cares when the world doesn't. And then one more reminder that we're outsiders in verse 11. I urge you as sojourners and exiles. So there's that tension. Outsiders in the world, but insiders of God's plan and his salvation, in his love, in his kingdom. So, Peter first reminds them, like we saw last week, keep looking forward. That's our hope. Keep looking forward to the day when we are at his table because we're insiders of his kingdom. So we can tolerate the rejection. We can tolerate the people that don't understand us. We can tolerate the slander because we're looking forward. We're not dwelling on the present rejection, but we're hoping for that future inclusion. That's hope. That's looking forward. Now he goes into plan number two. Hold on to holiness. Holiness will get us through. Now if hope was looking forward to Peter, holiness is living backward. If hope is looking forward, holiness is living backward. I know it sounds strange, right? Because Americans are all about progress, move forward. We're so much smarter than the rest of the world with our technology and science. Listen, that's exactly the point. As the world goes one way and continues to progress in its spiritual amnesia and forgetting God and are created in his image, holiness says, wait a minute. We want to get back to what we've forgotten. We want to get back to that original call to be kings of creation and priests of God's temple. We want to live the way he made us to live. And that's what holiness is. It's a call to stand in your life and to start living back towards what the rest of humanity has forgotten. Holiness is living backwards, which means it is not A system in which we police each other. Well, you watched what last night? I am too holy for that. That's not the idea of holiness. The minute I say, and you know, I, I was like, I, I'm studying and like the word holy is like on my heart. And I'm thinking, that is such an outsider word, isn't it? 
holy. Like the word doesn't, the world doesn't use that word unless it's like holy cow or some <laughs> other slang or throw the name of Jesus in there. Like that's the only time holy comes up because the image of holy that we have painted into that word is so unearthly. And it's, it's, it is so like white perfection and halos and glowing. We're like, no, but no human attains that. That's holiness. And we're all freaked out by the idea. But holiness really in a simple, like for mere humans like me, and if you're one of those two, mere humans trying to follow Jesus, holiness is simply the idea that I want to live backward. I want to forget the spiritual amnesia and remember, let God download into my brain who I really am and how to go about in this world as an outsider. That's all holiness means to me. So, no, I'm not going to go around and like holiness checking you guys. Like... (laughs) That's also a very limited way of living. When all we do is look at holiness as, well, you can't do that, you can't say that, you can't think that, you can't watch that, you can't hear that, you can't, you can't, you can't, you can't. Suddenly, we're narrowing the life that God has given us, and this whole idea of ruling his creation, we're narrowing it to becoming peons and prisoners of his holiness? And it sounds so narrow, and it sounds so pathetic, it's not the idea. We're not about, listen, the world looks at us and says, oh, we know you guys are not about, you're not about this and not about that and not about, and the, everything that we're against is what we're known for. Holiness has gotten a bad rap because we have this idea that it's some unearthly thing to attain through perfection and we're constantly judging each other on our holiness factor. Holiness is simply that desire to live backwards to go back to our original call in place as Peter reminds them you are a royal priesthood that is what it means to be holy we are taking a stand against conventional culture and its gods if we are part of a new kingdom right a royal priesthood that means I'm a part of the king's priesthood I'm part of a new kingdom if I'm part of a new kingdom it means that I am not part of the world's kingdom which means that usually if you have two kingdoms dwelling in the same sphere you have civil war but the church has not been called to fight our world the church has not been called to violence Holiness, therefore, becomes a non-violent form of resistance. We haven't been called to fight, but we have been called to resist. Because of the way that we are born, right? In verse 11, to abstain from the passions of your flesh. Like, that's like a rut for us. The passions of the flesh. That's something we wake up not having to be taught how to do. We have to resist the kingdom of the world in order to reflect the kingdom of God. That's holiness, living backwards, taking the idea of nonviolent resistance. It's a political campaign, holiness is, but it's not dangerous in the type of way that we're going to kill people or hate people or speak poorly about them. No, holiness is simply trying to mirror our God. Mirror our God. And now when I say that, you're thinking, wait a minute, you just said, like, it's not this, like, sometimes we just think of God as like some guy who's so petty about the little things. Like I lied and heaven is being ripped asunder because I lied. So to be like God, to mirror God means I'm not going to ever lie again. Even a white lie. I got to be honest about everything. Okay, that's good. And I'm not going to say it doesn't matter. But honestly, when we're talking about holiness, to mirror God, there are bigger things to mirror than I'm just going to keep my mouth shut and make it good. There's way bigger things. 
Mirroring God is talking about his generosity, the way that he's given us this world to sustain us. He's given us his son to die for us. It's talking about love of enemies. God sent his son to die for his enemies. That's mirroring God. Hospitality, as God has opened his creation to us at the risk that we would ruin it, and we did very well. Uh, that's hospitality, and that's mirroring God, opening our lives, opening our churches, opening our homes to the foreigner, to the, to the person who's not like us. Forgiveness. This is mirroring God, forgiving those who don't deserve it. That when your neighbor stuffs that skunk in your mailbox, post office box, you return the favor with not escalating the prank, but by baking brownies and saying, God loves you and so do I. Right? The radical forgiveness This is what it means to mirror God. Stop thinking about petty little moral things. Those are good and we need to have those. But when we talk about mirroring God, we're talking about the big works of God. That's what the church needs more than anything. Stop trying to police each other, this little holiness, and start declaring and living a huge holiness. A holiness that says the world is forgotten, but we want to remind you. And every act of holiness is a recall to what the world is supposed to be and the humans God created and what he gave them to do. So verse 9, in the middle of it, it says that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's the idea of what holiness does. As priests, as a royal priesthood, we are proclaiming the works of God, we are mirroring the works of God, we are living those works. And that is the way we resist the kingdom of this world. We don't have to go around and telling people how wrong they are all the time. That's very hateful sometimes. It's perceived as hateful. We need to go around showing them Jesus. And when you do so, you are silently resisting the kingdom of the world. And it's God's. We critique the gods of this world every time we're generous. America lives by materialism. I am going to get as much money as I can. I'm going to hire people for as little as possible, sell my product for as much as possible, make my product for as little as possible by shipping it off to child slavery offshore so that I can become rich and have all the nice stuff. This is what our nation is running on, materialism. But every time the people of God give acts of generosity, we help the poor, we give free dinners, we invite people into our homes. Every time we do that, we are silently critiquing the kingdom of this world. And we're saying we don't have to be materialists to have a great life. We don't have to be materialists because God is generous. God is hospitable. And in, our, in a nation where our viewpoint is also militarism, we, we spend an extraordinary amount of money hiking up our, uh, our military and pouring and pouring money into it so that we could crush our enemy. Yes, to defend our nation, but how much of that's used to crush the enemy when the church could do something different and say, you know, we could be like that as outsiders. We could shore up on our ammo and start attacking the world and start telling them how they're wrong and why we're right. We could do that. But instead, we want to love our enemy and forgive. And that's a silent resistance. It's a critique of the kingdom of this world. 
And every time we do these acts, it's holiness. It's calling the world to live in a backward manner, back towards the way God made us in the Garden of Eden. And Peter is reminding us of that when he says, you are a royal priesthood. We're mirroring God, we're resisting the kingdom of this world. Third, we're taking Jesus' steps. Jesus' footsteps, if we look at them, they actually go backwards. Look with me in chapter 2, verse 21. For to this you have been called... I'm going to context this in a second. I just wanted to read the verse for you. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his footsteps, or in his steps. These steps go backwards. Now, let's see what he's talking about, okay? 13. This is 2 verse 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. (laughs) Submit yourselves to every human institution. Yes, our future and present president. (laughs) Whether it be to the emperor as supreme. Now remember who the emperor is as he's writing. Remember last week? This is Nero. The original persecutor of the church. Or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. (laughs) He bookended that paragraph with honor the emperor, honor the emperor. 18. Servants. Here he is second time. Be subject. Be in submission. Be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. So servants back then were property of the owner. Uh, lots of slaves in the Roman Empire is very common. If you didn't have a means of live, livelihood, you would just give yourself as a servant or slave to a rich guy. And you became his property. He could use you however he wanted. And if a slave ever... Uh, a, a master could just crucify a slave at whim. He could. He had that ability. And slaves were often crucified, especially if they tried to run away. So it wasn't always good for servants and slaves at this time. Uh, but Peter here is reminding them, hey, be subject to them. Be in subjection to them. Honor them. For this 19 is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. So look, if your master is mean to you because you're a Christian, because he thinks you're an atheist and an antisocial uh, uh, usurper of the Roman way of livelihood, um, consider yourself blessed because you're suffering for God. So he continues, 20, For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? Obviously you deserve it, so right? It's, it's no credit. But if when you do good and suffer for it, You endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called. Because Christ also suffered for you. 
leaving an example so that you might follow in his steps. Now, do these steps go backwards? Do they go towards the amnesia that the world has forgotten? Yes, look what Jesus does. Completely backward from what society would do. 22, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he reviled back. He won up them. No. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he said, you know what I could do? You know who my dad is? No. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. See that? He was treated like an outsider. And did Jesus fight and shove his way and say, no, I'm an insider. Treat me like one. He said, yep, that's me. I'm an outsider. But see, I know where these steps are going. He himself bore his sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you are straying like sheep. Don't forget that when we practice holiness. You too were straying like sheep. But now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Wow. So living backward, a royal priesthood, it first mirrors God, it second resists this kingdom, the kingdom of the world. Third, it follows Jesus' steps. Fourth, if you want to turn to Jeremiah, it's worth seeing. So I don't, I sometimes just read it to you, but turn to Jeremiah 29 if you are into Bible page turning. <laughs> Jeremiah 29. Jeremiah is sort of in the middle. The Bible is a little bit past the middle. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations. Jeremiah 29. Here's the context. Babylon had defeated Jerusalem, the Jews are now exported, they're exiled, they're living in Babylon, they're outsiders in this strange land. Um, While they're there, though, some prophets have stood up and said, hey, hey guys, no sweat at all, God's going to take care of this. In fact, we predict in about two years, just just two years, just sit down, in two years, he will come back for us, and we'll be free. That's what they were saying. So what Jeremiah says is, no, not the prophecy God gave me. I see a totally different future. I see that we're going to be in this exile for the long haul. So I need to write them a letter and tell them that those other prophets are wrong. So Jeremiah says, no, don't just wait two years for their return and redemption. Dig in for the long haul because we don't know when God's going to get us out of this. So he writes them a letter. And this is what he says in Jeremiah 29, verse 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This is what he tells them, verse 5. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Well, if you're not going to be there for more than two years, why would you plant a garden which might take you two years to see the produce of. Why would you build a house? You would just rent. And it gets even, it gets even deeper. He's really telling him, think long term. So don't just build houses and build gardens. He says in verse 6, take wives. You're going to be married. And have sons and daughters. Make a family. 
Take wives for your sons and give daughters in marriage. Listen, he's saying, don't just build your own family, but think about grandchildren. You see what he's doing here? He's like, you will be in Babylon for a while. So think about your grandchildren. Make a home for them there. Get used to this. That they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. In other words, do not check out and just wait passively and say, all right, whenever. Don't go that way. Keep on moving Establish your community there in Babylon as outsiders. Uh, So verse 7, and this is one that gets me. But seek the welfare, or the the Hebrew is shalom. Seek the shalom. We know that as peace. We know that as wholeness. That's what it means to the Jews, peace and wholeness. Seek the shalom of the city where I have sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its shalom, you will find your shalom. Whoa. It's kind of not the attitude we see often with Christianity in our nation. And yet, Jeremiah told them that the way an outsider needs to behave in his host empire, the one he doesn't belong to, is not as someone who's just going to step way out over here and say, well, holiness, you know, I'm just separating myself, and just kind of wait around. Jeremiah said, Israel, the way that you're to be God's people right now is get into the Babylonian culture. Get to know these people. Build houses alongside them and make gardens. Have families. Do not check out, but engage. And this is one of the common flaws we see with holiness. As we hear the phrase, we're in the world, but not of the world. We cling to that last part. We're not of the world. And so we look at holiness as a location. Holiness is the world's doing this and I'm over here doing something totally different. That's just checking out. That's being raptured too early, if you will. (laughs) (laughs) Jeremiah said, go in there and... Peter would agree, go and keep submitting to the relationships you have and the authorities that are over you. Be a royal priesthood. Priests are connection points between God and people, and you cannot be that connection if you're going to go live way over there. You're outsiders, but don't live outside of society. You're treated like you don't belong, but don't say, okay, cool, we'll go live in the desert and just kumbaya until Jesus returns. (laughs) You're outsiders, but you need to bring holiness into the society. So we need to bless our city, not just stand back and verbally accuse it and judge it. We need to engage in it and with those acts of resistance, those mirroring God's greater works, those works of holiness, live backwards in the center of the kingdom we live in and show them this is the kingdom of God. So that's Peter's plan. Live backwards. Be that royal priesthood. So in 1 verse 16, I wanted to um, call your attention to it again. We'll start in verse 15. 1 verse 15. This is, by the way, is where it's all coming out of is Peter's command here to 
As he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And then, of course, he tells us, okay, you're holy. You're a royal priesthood. Priests are holy. Like, that's your job. Be holy. You're the royal priesthood. Go into your society. And then he says, you're like priests. You're proclaiming the excellencies of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's 2 verse 9. And then in 2 verse 11, here we see holiness again. I urge you as sojourners and exiles, abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. So see, that's, that's what he's doing. He's asking us to be holy. So that when they speak against these evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. If we will live holy, he's saying, be holy people. Join this backward living movement. And if we will be holy, then perhaps those who are slandering us, those who are speaking evil of us, those who have created their stereotypes and their, their labels for Christianity, when they finally see long enough our good deeds, that when Jesus returns, they might say, what can I say? God must be glorified. These people have been so good to me even. See, it's not just about me being good in my own like personal sanctity sanctification. It's not like all about me building up myself as a good person. It's about the community living backwards in the kingdom of the world and doing good things for quote bad people. And that's when they will see the works. And despite everybody has a stereotype about Christianity. Have you realized that? Especially my generation. They all have their stereotypes about us, but have they seen what you really are? Have they seen your works? Because that's what matters. And Peter's saying, if we choose to be holy, there's a chance that people will be converted just by watching our works. Like he says to the ladies in chapter 3, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. So in this time and in Peter's context, it was very common for women to be converted to Christianity, but men not to be. Because the women didn't have much to lose in society. Just maybe their reputation, the other housewives gibbering about them. That was what they would lose. But the men had much more to lose because for the men, their work depended upon them cooperating with other pagans who sacrificed the gods in the workplace. And when, Christ, when men became Christians, they were ejected from these work groups. And so no longer having the protection of working with your like guild, which is how they thrived then, you would be left to work on your own. And many of the Christians became poor as a result. The men had a ton to lose, and their family was on the line. Some men would just say, it's not worth it. I don't want to be a Christian. And so Peter has a lot of wives to address. How do we win our husbands who are so obsessed with their status in this world? Peter very wisely says, like he's been telling the whole church, he now says, don't eat his ear off. (laughs) 
don't whine and complain. He's going to take you as a whiner and a complainer. Don't talk incessantly to him about your faith. He's going to shut you up. He's going to shut down to you. You have to live backwards in the household. You have to show him the amnesia that he has by showing him what it looks like to live before you've forgotten who God made us to be. And that's Peter saying there, without a word, by your conduct, maybe they'll be converted. It's powerful. And listen, this is the message to the church today. As individuals, bless you, as individuals, as a body, more and more our words don't count. And we need holy, backward living more than ever. That's how this generation will survive That's how Christianity will survive in this generation. So, um, be holy. That's the call to action. I want you guys to, as he said, uh, gird up your loins. That was the Exodus picture of just being ready for action. Their long clothing, just get ready and be holy. You're a priesthood, a royal priesthood. You don't just represent a God, you represent a kingdom, a future, a way of life. Will you be holy? Will you strive with me to be holy? Yes, we're going to mess up, you know? We have the desires of the flesh. But we can choose to follow the steps of Christ, to live backwards as much as possible. To be holy through our conduct it will give us one of two results. We're either going to see, we choose not to live holy, we may see man and humanity without God, and things are just going to get worse, and we're going to see continual separation, and the story is going to end very badly for many people as we become the insiders, and they are going to forever, eternally be the outsiders. Or we can be holy, and we can see people watching our conduct, erasing stereotypes, reassessing what the church really is, forgetting about the hypocrites, believing true Christianity, and saying, we want your God. We want your kingdom. We'll join you on the outside if that's what it takes. Those are our options. The call to action is to be holy. Will we, as followers of Jesus, choose to be a holy priesthood? I want to close with this quote by St. Francis of Assisi. It says, preach the gospel, and if necessary, use words. I wonder what would happen if we literally did that. We are so quick to doing that grocery line witness thing. You know what I mean? Or the elevator. Not, this is not wrong. But we're very quick to limiting outreach to this. Okay, I'm alone with somebody in the elevator. I hate elevator rides with someone. It's always awkward. You just stare at the door. Listen to horrible music. Can you punch five for me? Thank you. Um, and then, then the... And this is a sort of weak definition of holiness, but the, quote, holy ones of us are, like, sweating because, like, I should really witness this person right now. And so, um, do you know Jesus? 
or you know, it's just like the hard, like how do I start this? And and then the or some people go with the whole the I've heard of like the thirty second testimony. I was once an alcoholic, then I met Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> and like there's some like the pre planned speech, like the other person's like. I'll take the stairs. <laughs> I'll get off right now. Uh, like, look, people get saved that way. That's not wrong. And that's not always ineffective. But that is our first thought. American evangelism, our first thought is speak. What if our first thought was act? What if we were more patient and decided to let the seeds of action reap a harvest rather than immediate conversion. I'm going to talk to you right now. You're going to make a decision for me. What if we were less like in your face and like hostile, like kingdom against kingdom sort of war. And what if we were just trying to do this subversively? They talk about the frog that boils in water. If you throw a frog in the boiling water, it jumps out. If you throw a frog in room temperature water and slowly boil it, it boils. And I've always been told that illustration for holiness. Like, don't hang around sin because it will slowly get to you. But what if we looked at that analogy and said, we share the gospel gradually and slowly through works and people gradually say, I do like Christianity, rather than just punch them in the face with a message and then they jump out. What if we really did try to preach the gospel and when necessary, use words? Or as Peter's going to say next week in 315, um, being ready to give an answer when asked. Let us be holy. Lord, we ask that you go before us, that we may follow in your steps. Go behind us to steer us when we stray. And Lord, go beside us to strengthen us for our journey. We pray in your son's name. Amen. Amen.